All right, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16 is where we are. Last week in our study of Revelation, we began to see some of the particulars of the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I reminded you that because this is apocalyptic literature, we need to avoid the pressure of either understanding these things super concretely or literalistically. We also need to avoid trying to explain what known phenomenon would produce similar results, like what kind of disease would produce sores like are described in this text. Rather, we need to let these images sit with us, stir us up, move us, startle us, wake us up. That's the design of apocalyptic literature. In many ways, what we see here is like worse than the worst things we can imagine. That seems to be the picture that's being painted. This is worse than the worst things you can imagine. And this intense, gross, terrible suffering is what awaits those who go on in their stubborn unbelief and in their stubborn unrepentance. It is the wrath of God. In fact, all of what we saw last week, of all of those things, the fact of these people's stubborn unrepentance in light of their suffering is maybe the most heartbreaking of it all. That, that they're experiencing all of this and that God is demonstrating his mercy in it and giving them not only the chance to repent but motivation for repentance and they seem to understand what's going on and yet double down in the stubborn unbelief and the stubborn unrepentance. It is heartbreaking. We are seeing in the text over the last few weeks the answer to the question that we've raised over and over again in our study, will they repent? Will they repent? And the answer seems to be no. But I've told you a thousand times, the bigger question is, will you repent? Will we repent? I hope so. I hope even now that we will be a people of repentance. So by way of application from last week, I told you that these things are terrifying. That this text is terrifying, and so we should be afraid. Uh, we should not be able to read this and be completely indifferent. We should not just dismiss this as some kind of symbolic threat. We need to read these things and be terrified. We need to know that this kind of judgment is coming, this wrath is coming, and so therefore repent. We need to turn from our sins and turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and submission and obedience unto him. We need to know that this is coming, this wrath is coming, so we should preach the gospel. We have the message of deliverance. We have the message of rescue. We have the message of salvation. The only escape from the wrath of God is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be out there telling the world about the hope that is found in Christ alone. We need to repent and preach and we need to trust. We need to know that in the midst of all of this, we can trust the Lord to set things right in the end. That, that there will be a reckoning, and it will be a righteous reckoning. It will be a just reckoning. And so whatever injustice we are facing, whatever wrongs we are facing in this life, we can trust the Lord uh, that he will set it all right in the end. We can trust him no matter how out of control things seem to be right now. I told you last week if we were going to boil it down to one bit of application, it would be don't be them. Don't be these people who see all these things and experience all these things and get harder and harder in their hearts. Rather, uh, be those who are broken and humble and repentant and faithful. We want to be that group of people. Well, this week we're going to continue with our look at bowls 6 and 7. And like last week, we're going to want to pay close attention to the interruptions in the action and the textual commentary. Those things are going to clue us in to what all of this means. They're going to clue us in to what is most important. And there is a big one right in the middle of the text today. In many ways, what we're going to see today is the climax. 
We have been building toward this within the bowls, within the seven bowls we've been building toward this, but also when we consider the seals and the trumpets and really all of what we've been seeing so far in Revelation, in many ways, this is the climax. There's not going to be a fourth set. There's not going to be another repetition of these things. This is it. You're going to see the language of it is done in the text today. It is finished. So one of the things that this text today needs to do in us is build a sense of urgency. There is a sense of urgency that we should feel as we read this text today, that we should feel as we study the text today. And so we're going to pray that the Lord would allow us to feel that, that, that we would not be able to read and study the things that we're going to look at today and be unmoved, uh, that, we would, that we would potentially yawn at this is absolutely unreasonable. We want to feel the sense of urgency that this text brings. So let's read it together in Revelation chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 12 and get through the rest of the chapter today, verse 21. Read with me, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out from the kings of the whole world, go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megedon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came, upon the, came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that the great day of the Lord is drawing near. And so we pray that you will make us ready that we will be awake and clothed and not ashamed when our Lord comes like a thief in the night. So keep us close to you. Keep us clean from sin. Keep us active in preaching and teaching and testifying to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we know that for many, the great day will be a day of terror and judgment and condemnation. Oh, Father, use this text today to wake people up, to open their eyes to the greatness of your holiness and your righteousness and your justice, and wake them up to the reality of their sinfulness and their depravity and the coming judgment upon them, and wake them up to the glorious truth of Christ dying in their place. Give them faith to trust in him. Give them repentance to turn away from sin. Grant them forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, and life eternal by your grace. 
and for your own glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All right, so we're going to walk through this text like we, like we usually do, kind of verse by verse, scene by scene, thought by thought. Look at verse 12. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, what you need to understand here is that in the Old Testament, the river Euphrates marked the far boundary of the land that God had promised to give to his people. It was like the furthest boundary of that land that God had promised to Abraham. In fact, look at that promise. This is part of the promise God makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 18. God's word says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So that, that river Euphrates has always been kind of this easternmost boundary of the land that God had promised to give to his people. But in the first century, when John is writing this book for the first century church, the river Euphrates served as the border, marking off Rome, the empire of Rome, from its neighbors to the east. And these neighbors to the east for Rome were not friendly neighbors. They were not like your local state farm agent, Rick Brockett, a good neighbor. They were enemies of God's people. They were invading God's, they were, they were enemies of Rome, and they desired to invade Rome. And Rome lived in this constant anxiety that there would be an invasion from the other side of that river. But fortunately, it was a big river. It was a great river and a pretty good boundary. And armies would have to cross. It was hard to cross, but this text says it's dried up. It's going to be dried up. And that is reminiscent of the drying up of the Red Sea for God's people to cross over. It's reminiscent of the parting of the Jordan River for God's people to cross over in the Old Testament. And this is a similar picture here that the great river Euphrates will be dried up so that the kings from the east could come in. But what you're going to see here as this plays out is really interesting. Because these invading armies of the kings from the east are not coming across the river Euphrates in order to attack Rome. That doesn't seem to be the picture at all. That's what, that's what Romans were constantly afraid of, that an invading army from Parthia would come across the river Euphrates and invade them and attack them. That's not what's going to happen here. It's not the picture that's painted here. Rather, these armies of the kings from the east are going to come across the river Euphrates in order to join Rome. In order to join Rome and really all of Babylon, that is the earthly kingdom that is opposed to God, in a standoff against the Lord himself. That's what's going to happen as these kings from the east come across. They are going to join forces together with Rome in some kind of opposition to the Lord. Isn't it interesting how groups that would normally fight against each other will unite together in their opposition to the Lord? We, we see that in the Gospels. We see the enemies of God often joining together, enemies of each other even, joining together in order to oppose specifically the Lord Jesus. I, I'm thinking about the, the Pharisees and the Herodians when they joined their forces together against Jesus. Those are two groups that normally hated each other, but because they had an, a common enemy in the Lord Jesus, they were able to get together. We see that happen throughout history, and we see it happening here, right? And we see it playing out even today. Even today, groups that are normally opposed to each other, normally fighting with each other, will actually come together and join hands in order to oppose God and his people. We see that playing out even in the world today. And so that is the picture that is being painted here with these kings of the east. They're going to come in to Rome, not to attack Rome, not to invade Rome, but to join Rome in this opposition against God. 
My favorite line about this battle that is being set up here comes from James Hamilton Jr. I love this guy. I love his tone. I love the way he talks. He says, God's enemies can all gather themselves in one place to launch their grand assault against the Almighty. This may look wise and noble and valiant, but John shows us what it truly is. A stupid, rebellious, shameful waste that is really little more than a suicide mission. I love his tone, don't you? Just straight, straight shooter, this guy. In fact, what you're going to see as this plays out, as we continue in our study of Revelation, is that this battle is far from the epic scenes that we are familiar with in movies. Movies like Braveheart, movies like Lord of the Rings or The Avengers or something like that, where we see these epic battles playing out. It's not like that. It's not like Rocky, where it looks like the hero is going to lose and the outcome seems uncertain. No, that's not the way this battle is going to play out. What you're going to see is there's a whole lot of buildup. There's a whole lot of anticipation. These armies gather together in opposition against the Lord. And then Jesus shows up and just wipes them all out with a sword that comes out of his mouth. In fact, before that happens, he tells the birds of the air, hey, get ready, there's about to be a slaughter and you're going to feast on the bodies of the kings of the nations and the armies of the nations. It's not this epic battle. Jesus just shows up and takes care of them. He wipes them out. It is indeed a suicide mission that these kings from the east are coming into Rome for. Look at verse 13. It says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. So once again here in Revelation, we see this unholy trinity of the dragon, right, who is Satan, of the beast from the sea, who is often referred to as the Antichrist, though not here in Revelation, and then the beast from the land, who here is referred to as the false prophet. We've talked about these three characters before, and I want you to remember that they are a bogus counterfeit of the real holy trinity. And their entire desire, their entire mission is to lure people away from trusting and following and worshiping the one true God. Their entire desire is to pull people away from the Lord and cause them, convince them to worship and align themselves with the beast. And so like before with these three, there seems to be here a, a, a traveling together of the message and miracles, right, of proclamation and power. And what we learn here is that that power and the proclamation is empowered by demons. It's empowered by demons in order to lead people into devotion and submission to this unholy trinity. I want you to notice that this spectacular power is used to bring in the kings to align themselves against the Lord here. And so I want you to remember this principle we talked about a few weeks ago. I told you a few weeks ago that not everything that looks like a miracle is indeed a miracle. Do you remember that? That, that, that sometimes the way the false prophet and, and the dragon and the beast work is, is they make things seem to be supernatural and seem to be miraculous. Not everything that seems to be a miracle is truly a miracle. But more importantly, I told you a few weeks ago that not every miracle is a miracle that comes from the Lord. Not every true miracle is a miracle that comes from the Lord. And it seems like 
the, the unholy trinity here has some kind of power to produce things that are indeed miraculous, that are indeed supernaturally powerful, but they do not come from the Lord. And they are trying to win people over to join this battle against the Lord. So sometimes these so-called miracles or even miracles in fact are used by the enemy to draw people to oppose the Lord rather than to trust in him. So we need to carefully examine these miraculous supernatural things when we see them. I think my favorite part of this section in verse 14, though, is that this battle is referred to as the great day of God, the Almighty. Isn't that significant? Is referred to as the great day of God, the Almighty. That is a not-so-subtle clue as to how this whole thing is going to play out. It's not the battle to end all battles. It's not the showdown at Armageddon. It's not the day of the dragon or the day of the beast, or the day of the false prophet. It is referred to here as the great day of God, the Almighty. In other words, it's a clue that you can get all the kings you want together. You can get all the armies of all the kings you want together, and they will not be able to stand against the Lord God Almighty. And that truth would have helped the first century church. That concept, that picture, would have helped the struggling and oppressed first century church And it should help us today as well. That in the end, it's the great day of the Lord, the Almighty. He is the one who is victorious. And we need to remember that in the midst of all of our trouble. But look at verse 15. Verse 15 is really interesting. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. I told you last week, to pay careful attention to the interruptions and the commentary as all of this action unfolds. And this is by far the most conspicuous interruption of them all. New American Standard does its best to set it off as much as possible by using parentheses and quotation marks here. And if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, this should be read. Interestingly, my copy of of New American Standard doesn't have it as read here. It's a red letter uh, edition, but for some reason this is not read. But mark it down. This is the the Lord Jesus speaking here. It should be read. This is Jesus speaking here, and he is speaking to his people. That is, to the church. So as all of this unfolds, we we get this little nugget from the Lord Jesus himself directly to his people in light of everything that's happening here. It is super helpful. It is helpful, it is encouraging, and it is an instructive word for the first century church as it faced opposition and challenge and as it anticipated the end. Remember, I told you that one of the things apocalyptic literature does is it anchors the present reality in the future unseen reality. It helps us anchor our present and very visible reality, all the stuff that's going on in our lives. This apocalyptic literature helps us anchor that in a future unseen reality, right? That that there's coming a day when this is all going to be settled. The end is coming. That's helpful for us now. It's helpful to know that a battle is coming, that the Lord is going to win, and it's all going to be finished then. That helps us endure here and now. But apocalyptic literature also helps anchor our present seen reality in the present unseen reality. So these same forces that are going to gather together against the Lord are already against the Lord. We already see some of these kind of things playing out right now. So it would have been super helpful, this word from Jesus to the church in the first century, and it should be helpful to us as well. 
this is a helpful, encouraging, and instructive word for the 21st century church as we face various opposition and challenges and anticipate the coming end. There are a few things specifically that I want you to see here. Two notable principles in this word from Jesus to the church. First, I want you to notice the unexpected nature of his return. Notice the unexpected nature of his return. This language of a thief, a thief that comes in the night, comes directly from Jesus in the Gospels also. That's what we read. That's why Sam read earlier from Matthew chapter 24. Jesus speaks of his own coming like this, like a thief in the night. Paul talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus like a thief in the night in 1 Thessalonians. I think one of the things that that idea does, one of the things of the unexpected nature of the return of Jesus does, is it helps us relax in some ways as we study Revelation. It helps us relax as we study in Revelation because if the goal of our study of Revelation is to assemble a timeline or a calendar that allows us to predict the timing of the great day of God the Almighty, and if that prediction causes us to be inactive and lazy and indifferent until we see that day drawing near, we will have absolutely missed the point, right? If we're like, oh, I, I totally understand everything in Revelation, and it's going to play out just like this, and, and uh, we're, we're a long way from that, and so I'm just going to chill out here and just enjoy life. No need to be ready because the end is not so near. Like if that's what happens as you put all this together, you have totally missed the point. In fact, there's a big part of me that wants to say, throw your prophetic calendar and your observation of the signs of the times out the window and be ready today. Like, be ready today. That's the point that's going on here. That's why Jesus interrupts all of this that's unfolding, and he says, be ready. Keep your clothes on. Be on the alert. He's coming like a thief in the night. That's why he talks this way. That's the point. Be ready now. I read one guy who likened the times that we live in today, the last days, that really began with the ascension of Jesus to stoppage time in soccer. Right, so we've got very few people who are going to understand this. This guy who was articulating it like this was obviously European, as his audience was so familiar with soccer. You're not as familiar with soccer. And the way soccer works is this. There is a clock that counts down in soccer. Like as they're playing, and, and at the college level and professional level, it's two 45-minute periods, right? And the clock starts when the game starts, and it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. But along the way... The referee is keeping track of all the things that would have stopped the clock in a normal sport, right? Things like the ball going out of bounds and somebody having to chase it down. Things like substitutions where players are being swapped and, and things like that. Or in soccer when somebody twists their ankle and rolls around on the ground for five minutes acting like they're hurt and then jumps up. Uh, the referee is keeping, keeping track of how much time that was taking. And when the clock gets to the end, when the clock gets to zero, 45 minutes is counted down and the clock gets to zero, there's no buzzer. There's no siren that goes off like every other sport in the world, right? Rather, the game just keeps going. And the referee, in his own mind, is keeping up with, eh, we had about five minutes. We had about five minutes of stoppage time. And so he's keeping track of that. And at some point, unexpected to most people in the audience, he's going to blow his whistle three times and the game's going to be over. And nobody knows when that moment is coming except the referee himself. And this guy was talking about this and he was like, that's just like, just like our lives, the clock has, is at zero. 
The time is up, and we are living in stoppage time, and we have no idea when the referee's going to blow his whistle three times and the game will be over. And so we need to be ready for that in every moment. If you play soccer and the clock is at zero, your sense of urgency is ratcheted up, right? You're, you're like playing even harder than before when the time was counting down because you know the game is almost over, but you don't know when it's going to be over. That's the way we need to live our lives. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Time is up. We are living in stoppage time. The whistle could blow at any moment. And therefore, Jesus says, be ready. Be awake. Be alert. Keep your clothes on. I don't know exactly what that's all about, but you should keep your clothes on. The second thing that we see here is not just the unexpected nature of Jesus' return. The second thing we learn from what he says here is the call to spiritual diligence. Spiritual diligence and alertness and awakeness. He says, be awake and keep your clothes on. How do I make sure I'm ready for this? How do I make sure I'm playing with the kind of intensity I should be playing with? How do I make sure I know the times and I'm living with a state of readiness, knowing that that whistle could blow at any moment? Well, James Hamilton Jr. is helpful once again. His pastoral tone in all of this is just the most helpful thing. Most scholars are like way up here and super nerdy when it comes to Revelation. And this guy is like the guy you want to have coffee with because he's, he's helpful in a pastoral sense. And he says this. He says, Here, here's what you must do. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. Join a church where the gospel is preached and the Bible is explained. Read your Bible and pray. Walk with God. Know your Bible. Read the word world through the interpretive grid built for you by the Bible. Reject the interpretive grid pushed by the world. Be a student of the scriptures and reflect on life informed by the scriptures. So James Hamilton, when he's giving this helpful news, helpful application about how do you stay ready, it's all pretty well focused on study the Bible, right? Know the Bible and know how the Bible should impact how you live, right? That will help you stay alert. So in these last days, in the stoppage time, don't set your Bible aside. Pour into it, study it, know it so that you will live with a sense of readiness and alertness, that you will have spiritual diligence. This interruption by Jesus couldn't be more important. As he speaks a word to the church, in light of all of this that's going on, he speaks to the word, a word to the church about the unexpected nature of his return and the diligence with which they should live spiritually. And we need to hear what Jesus says to them because he's saying the same thing to us even now. Look at verse 16. It says, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Mageddon. This is so weird. Cooper may need to weigh on, in on this later. It, it may be weird, but it is also really helpful to us because you cannot find this place on a map. In, in fact, even the name of this place is like a total contradiction. Even in the name of the place, there's a contradiction. Most scholars agree that this literally says Mount Megiddo. Har Mageddon is Mount Megiddo, and there is no Mount Megiddo. There's a Megiddo. It's a city that's located in a valley, an important valley where a lot of battles, major battles, were fought in the Old Testament and in history in general, but it is a valley. And guess what a valley is? It's like the opposite of a mountain. And yet this place is called Mount Megiddo. So what we don't need to do with verse 16 is set up surveillance cameras on a certain mountain and wait for tanks to roll in and then we'll know the end is near. Because we would not know where to put those surveillance cameras. Because there is no Mount Megiddo. 
I'm with Grant Osborne thinking that the reference to Mount Megiddo must be symbolic in nature. He says, Grant Osborne says, it stands for the assembly of all the sinful nations arrayed against God and his people as they come together in defiance to make war against God and against the land. That is what happened in the Old Testament in the Valley of Megiddo and in history. The enemies of God wage war against the people of God. And what is coming will be the ultimate version of that. But I want you to know that this kind of thing is happening even now. The enemies of God coming against God and his people, that kind of thing is happening even now. In fact, we could say that even now the whole world is against the Lord. And the whole world is against his people. All of Babylon is against the church. But when I think about that, when I think about the whole world versus the Lord and his people who are with him, I'd place my bet on one faithful guy with the Lord at his side over the whole armies of all the nations in a battle any day. In fact, we've seen that play out in some pretty provocative ways in Scripture, right? One little dude with a rock and a sling versus the giant with a huge sword. And one little guy has the Lord. The Lord fights for him. And the Lord is victorious. That's encouraging to us. When we think about the whole world being against us, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? If he is for us, if he fights for us, who could possibly be victorious over him? No one. They gathered together in a place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Verse 17 says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. This is why the Lord is referred to earlier as the one who was and who is and not the one who is to come. Last week we saw that. Because this is it. The end has come. This was Pastor Joe's favorite part of the text as we talked it through this week. This is is what he liked the most. He liked it because the battle hasn't even happened yet. And the voice of God coming from the throne, from the temple, is already saying, it's done. He likened it to a Mike Tyson fight. You remember when Mike Tyson was in his heyday? And there will be all this buildup to the fight. Oh, the fight of the century, it's going to happen. Tyson versus whoever. And, and there would be pay-per-view that cost you 150 bucks. And there would be all this buildup to this great fight. And the bell would ring and Tyson would come out and throw one punch and it was over. Like, it was over before it even started in many ways. In fact, he talked about one fight where Tyson came out and you could tell that the guy that was going to fight him was like, I don't want any part of this. Even before the bell rang, it is done. That's the way it's going here. The victory of God is so certain that he says before the battle, it's over. It's finished. That, by the way, is loaded language. It's not the exact same word that Jesus uses from the cross. It's a different word, but it has a similar idea. Like it's done. It's wrapped up. There's not another another phase coming after this. And this is good news for us. This idea that the voice out of the temple, from the throne, says it's done. That is good news for us because it teaches us that the Lord is not only in control, but he is also victorious. There's no doubt about how this finishes. And that'll keep you going when life seems out of control, when somebody else seems to be in charge. It's a good reminder that the Lord is on the throne and that he is victorious. Look at verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great the earthquake was it, and so mighty. This is pretty standard apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic imagery here. Major developments are oftentimes reflected by this kind of natural or cosmic occurrence like we see here. So we would be mistaken to dive in um, to seismic readings 
in order to predict the end. Like that would be a mistake here. This is an image that something big is happening and all of creation is reflecting it. All of creation is reflecting it. It's a picture of just how monumental this occurrence is. Look at verse 19. It says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now we're going to see a great deal of detail about this, about the fall of Babylon in the next few weeks as we look at its fall described in the next couple of chapters. But today, I want to draw your attention to this cup. It says he re- they were remembered, Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. There are four things I want you to notice here. Number one, there is a cup. There is a cup of the fierce wrath of God. There is a cup. This is part of who God is. His justice, his righteousness, his holiness demands a cup of wrath. There is a cup of wrath. Number two, it will be poured out. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out. It will not remain for eternity in the cup. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out. There will be an execution of his justice. Not only he is just, but he will execute his justice. He will execute his righteousness. He will execute his holiness in the pouring out of his wrath upon his enemies. There is a cup. That cup will be poured out. Justice is certain. Third thing is, it will be poured out on you for your sins. If you are like these unrepentant unbelievers who follow the beast. If you are like Babylon who remains opposed to God, the cup of wrath will be poured out on you. That is terrifying. To think about the full measure of the wrath of God's righteous, holy justice being poured out on your head. If you understand the wrath of God rightly, that is terrifying. The full measure of God's wrath will be poured out, and it will be poured out on you if you're like these unbelievers who live in unrepentance, who align themselves against the Lord. Or, number four, that cup has been poured out on Jesus in your place. There is a cup. It will be poured out. It will either be poured out on you in God's righteous judgment and condemnation of you for all of eternity because of your unrepentance and unbelief, or it has been poured out on the Lord Jesus in your place. That is what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath for his people. That is for all who will repent and believe. And so I'm inviting you today to repent and believe. Because isn't it better to have the cup of God's wrath poured out on Jesus in your place than for it to be poured out on you? Yeah, I'll just go ahead and tell you that that is better. So I'm inviting you today to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've already done that, I want you to savor the sweetness of this idea. That, that Jesus stepped in and took your sin upon himself, like your sin, your earned sin and your earned wrath, he took it upon himself like it was credited to his account as if it was his sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Jesus stepped in as your substitute, took your sin upon his shoulders and drank the cup of God's wrath in your place. The cup that should be poured out on your head was poured out on his head. 
so that the wrath of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus in your place as a substitute, a substitute that was, that was foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament in the sacrificial system and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus as our great substitute, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He suffered in our place. And not only was our sin credited to his account and he suffered in our place, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account and we live in that righteousness. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ that is reckoned to us, that is counted to our account. This is beautiful, isn't it? And if we are God's people, that's that's where we live. Like, let's delight in that. Let's enjoy it. Let's savor the sweetness of substitution. It's a glorious truth that we embrace with all of our hearts. Look at verse 20 and 21. It says, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. When you look at this text, the hail is not what is most important. 100-pound hailstones get your attention, right? In fact, on Tuesday when we were talking this through, uh, Leonard Smith was, was, happened to be in the office and so we called him in and I said, I said, hey, Mr. Leonard, you've been around for a while. Ever seen a 100-pound hailstone? And he said, no, I can't say I have, and I quote, but that would put a knot on a, guy, a guy's head that, w- that his hat would not cover. That would put a knot on a guy's head that his hat would not cover. But the hailstones are not the key here. They're not what should get your attention. The fact that they come from heaven is important, but it's not the key to it. The fact that they come against men, that's important, but it's not the key. The key is, even still, even now, they will not repent. That's the key. It's that last phrase. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Danny Aiken has a helpful note here when he says, tragically, but now expected. Men curse God for his righteous judgment. Beaten, they again blaspheme. Conquered, they curse. One last time, they shake their fist in God's face and curse his name. Judgment day has come. The results are certain. The response of humanity is stunning. So great is their hatred for God, they curse his name with their final dying breath. And I want you to consider that And maybe that will help you make sense of some of the things I talked about at the end last week about how those who end up under the wrath of God are not dragged there kicking and screaming. They're not dragged there against their will wishing for the mercy and grace of God. No, they choose that. With their dying breath, they shake their fist at God. Let me remind you of what Daryl Johnson said. He said, God's wrath is not capricious. It's not arbitrary. It is earned. It is chosen. J.I. Packer said it similarly. Nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. Tim Challey says, God is not cruel in his wrath. He's not arbitrary. And his wrath will never be extended to the ignorant or innocent. He will apportion his wrath with perfect fairness upon those who have chosen to face it. We see that here. And I'm saying, don't be that. Don't choose that. Rather, choose the grace of God that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. Three applications come straight out of this text today, I believe. Number one, be ready. Keep your clothes on. That is the most unusual verse in this entire chapter. Like if if you're just reading through it, 
You come to that part and you're like, where did this come from? What is going on here? This seems to be totally foreign and just dropped in the middle of it. But it's Jesus speaking. And so when Jesus interrupts all this vision that he is seeing, that John is seeing here, we need to pay really close attention to that. It's the most unusual verse. And one of the things it teaches is that it's okay if we can't figure all this out. It's okay if we don't understand the details of what, what are these frogs that are coming out of somebody's mouth? Or what about this 100-pound hailstone? It's okay if we can't figure out all those details. We can be ready. We are called to be ready. We are called to live with a sense of alertness and urgency, right? Even if we don't understand all the details, we can live as if the referee would blow his whistle at any minute and the game would be over. We can live with that kind of urgency, and we must We can pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, if we live with readiness, with awakeness, with alertness. Be ready and keep your clothes on. That's number one. Number two is evangelize. One of the things we've got to take out of all of these judgment scenes, all of these wrath of God scenes, is an urgency to go and tell the world. An urgency to go to tell the world that there is an escape. We found the way of escape. We found the way out. It's in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've experienced forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. And we want to tell the rest of the world about it, right? We don't just want to sit back and watch them suffer. We want to extend hope and grace and life to them in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we must go and evangelize with a sense of urgency. Pastor Dylan this week says, Who then is the lost person? To whom you need to be going. Who is the lost person in your life that needs to hear you tell them about coming judgment and available salvation? Like not just not just in this theoretical sense of oh, there are people out there. In a very practical sense, in a very personal sense, who's that one person in your life that if nothing changes? the full cup of the wrath of God will be poured on their head. Who's that one person? How will you tell them about the hope that is found in Christ alone this week? Because the whistle is going to blow. The game will be over soon. And then it will be too late. In fact, I think that this idea of being ready, application number one, be ready, and application number two, evangelize, are really the same thing. I don't think a person can say, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready, and I'm living with a sense of anticipation and urgency. I am ready. I am awake. I am alert. And I'm not at all interested in telling anybody about the hope that is found in Christ alone. I'm ready for Jesus' return, and the rest of them can go to hell. That that undermines your first claim. If you're not evangelizing with a sense of urgency, if you're not engaging with a sense of urgency, you're not ready. If you're ready, you will evangelize. Those two things really go together. And the last application is really not for the church. It's for the world. And I'm convinced that there's a lot of the world in the church, and so we need to preach this way. I I think I would be a fool if I thought, if if I assumed that every one of you is truly converted. I would be a fool if, if I didn't acknowledge that there's some of you who may be deceived today. So I want to preach repentance. I want to invite you to repent your sins and trust in Christ if you've never done so, if you've never really done so. I want to encourage you to repent.
And I want to encourage us to preach repentance. Especially in light, in light of all the weirdness that's going on around the world right now. Like, let's just take coronavirus as one example. We've seen a lot of calls for response to the coronavirus. We've seen calls to political action. We've seen calls to vaccinate. We've had arguments about the science of all of it and the origin of all of it and the politics of all of it. We've seen a global call to all of those kind of discussions. But what we have not seen is a global call to repentance in light of it. And when we think about the numbers of people who are dying globally, it makes me think of some of this kind of stuff that we've been reading about, right? And so I think the best response from the church to COVID-19 should be, hey world, repent. Hey world, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ because if this is bad, there's something way worse than this coming and the only escape is, is Jesus, is trust in Jesus. So I want to I encourage us not only to be repenting, but to be preaching repentance in light of madness going on around us. Let's be about that. Let's not wait for this or that to develop and then repent. Let's be repenting now. Let's be repenting now and let's be, let's be preaching repentance even now. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we believe what, what your word says about your word, what you say about your word, that when it goes out, it doesn't come back empty, that it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. We rest on that today in light of this difficult text. It's hard to read. It's hard to understand. But it's your word. It's, it's out of your mouth. And so that promise of effectiveness is true, and we stand on that. Pray that one of the things that is accomplished in this room today is that your people are ready, that your people live awake, alert, and that your people live with urgency for evangelism that we are telling the world about the salvation that is available through Jesus and Jesus alone in light of this coming judgment. Pray that we will be preaching repentance, faith, and I pray for people who are outside of your family, who are lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. I pray that you'll bring them to repentance today that you will wake them up to the reality of your holiness and their sinfulness and Christ's sacrifice in their place. Pray that you'll give them faith and repentance. And you'll save them for your glory, for their good, but for your glory ultimately. We pray these things in Jesus' name.